There are many events in your life that never leave you. You always will remember them. I could name several for you this this morning, and you'll always remember those events in your life. Uh, No matter how many years go by, the memories are still crystal clear. This past Pentecost, I observed the 50th year of my ordination. It was quite a remarkable thing to reflect back. I was ordained an elder in the Church of God on the day of Pentecost, 1973. I've mentioned before I was only 12 years old. That is not true, uh, but it, it seems like it, Going looking back on all those years. I remember the minister who ordained me, and I remember my shock when I was informed that I was about to be ordained, which took place. I was informed on the Sabbath, before Pentecost, and then ordained on Pentecost. But interestingly, my association with the Church of God did not begin on that date. In fact, on that date, I already had a long history with the church for more than 20 years. See, it was in the spring of 1952 that my mother came across the broadcast while living in Michigan City, Indiana, in a small basement apartment while my father was working in nearby Chicago. As with most people, the first truth she accepted was the Sabbath, followed by the holy days. A couple of years later, we moved back to the farm in Arkansas when I was five years old. For 10 years, we kept the Sabbath at home and faithfully listened to Mr. Armstrong every evening at 7 o'clock on WLAC Nashville, every evening. That was my routine growing up. And it never changed for that 10-year period. We were very diligent. The most we could do on the Sabbath was take a walk around the farm. And that was it. We mostly stayed indoors, partly because everyone else was working. And it would have been a bit of a problem to see us not working. After 10 years, though, the letter arrived. It was my normal routine to go down, which was quite a distance away. We're on a rural route and get the mail and bring back to the house. That day, we had a letter from the Radio Church of God in Pasadena, California. I ran with the letter to my mother and she opened it. Her face lit up. The letter announced the opening of a congregation in Memphis, Tennessee, which was about 40 miles from our home. Her happiness was short-lived because she knew that her husband, my father, would not allow her to go, which was indeed true. But over the next few months, my father softened, and in January of 1962, he announced that we as a family were going to church together, and so we did. My father had never owned a suit before. He went and to... uh, well, not welfare, but he went to uh, obviously some thrift store in the area and he bought a suit for 75 cents and a tie for a quarter. And I remember those numbers very clearly at that time. Off to church we went. I remember the moment with great clarity. We met in the old Ellis Auditorium, which was on the Mississippi River as you cross over from Arkansas. As we got to the auditorium, we were directed to go down to the basement of the auditorium where the church had rented a small room to walk from the sunshine into the building and down to the basement 
I remember as though it were yesterday. I remember walking into the congregation. There were about 70 or so other people there at that time. Now, I've said this before, and it really is true. You may doubt it, but it really is true that we thought, since the letter came from Mr. Armstrong, that he would be there. In fact, we only knew of ourselves. We thought he was coming and starting a church just for us. Were we ever surprised to find 70 other people on that scene? Every moment, and that is no exaggeration of that first service, I remember. I remember very clearly from the moment the song leader stepped behind the lectern. We'd never seen that before. We'd only listened to the radio and began leading songs until the closing prayer. It was electrifying. We had attended a church for the first time in our lives even though we had been practicing what the church taught for more than a decade. It was an incredible experience. I'm awed, even to this day, to think about what that did. Not only in changing our lives, but introducing us to something that was very foreign to us. That wasn't that we didn't know about churches. We'd never been but it opened our eyes, it opened our hearts to something we did not know existed until that moment in time. Honestly, I've never lost that feeling, and I am awed each time I step through the doors of the Church of God, and I have memories of those days that come flooding back. But I acknowledge today that attitudes, desires, and feelings, even in regard to the Church, for a lot of people, are not the same. The pandemic created a whole different approach to religion for a lot of people. It is true that 30% of all churches that shut down for the pandemic never reopened. The approach to religion changed dramatically in the United States over the past few years. For them, or many of them, the church became irrelevant. And in the United States, you can say religion has become irrelevant for a growing percentage of people over the past 40 years, beginning around 1990. Do we really need a church? Is there really anything of value in a church? What purpose does it serve? How about the church in the year 2023? Is it the same as when you first walked through the doors or has it changed over those years? The title of my message today is pretty simple. Why the church? Why? Why even take the time to be involved in a church? Let me give you a few facts about churches in America today. How do those reflect on us as I give you these facts this morning? Uh, we can say, well, we're different. I hope we are. We approach religion differently. We have a, a, a more a, a relationship with each other, with the church in that sense. That's different than what others experience today. But is that really true? Are we not also affected? We were affected, certainly by COVID-19 and what happened over that two-year period of time. We were affected. But how were we affected? And why do we really have a church? 
Gallup did a survey and discovered something quite unusual. This is in recent years. These, are, these statistics are a few years old, so forgive me for that. But I believe the numbers are only worse than what I'm going to give to you. Gallup did a survey and discovered that good behavior actually declines after an individual becomes a Christian. Why is that? Those who claim to be Christian have a higher incidence, according to Gallup, of drunken driving and divorce than the rest of the country. 29% of Americans claim no religion, yet 95% claim to be religious. How do you coordinate those numbers? Only 61% of Americans believe that if children are raised in a religious home, they will grow up to be moral people. 39% felt that religion was not a factor in morality. That's from the Princeton Survey Research Associates. When surveyed about young people, the question was asked, do you think that young people today have as strong a sense of right and wrong as they did 50 years ago? 76% said no. 19% said yes. And 5% were undecided. Another question. Aside from weddings and funerals, how often do you attend religious services? Your options were more than once a week, once a week, once or twice a month, a few times a year, seldom, never, were all your options. 25% said once a week. 43% said a few times per year. 32% said seldom or never. When asked for a level of involvement in church, the response was 22% very involved, 47% not involved at all or slightly involved. When asked about their religion specifically, uh, as to whether it leads you to eternal life, the question was asked this way, my religion is the one true faith leading to eternal life. How would you answer that? 18% said yes. 18% said yes. Or many religions can lead to eternal life, 75%. Remaining 7% didn't answer or didn't agree with either question. This is from Barna. 33% of current church attendees have attended for less than five years. There's a revolving door taking place in churches today, and the majority of their attendance are less than five years with the church before they move on, of course, to something else. Uh, again, Barna survey, 29.4 million Americans claim they have no religion. That's double the number from 1990 when it was 14.3 million. Again, from Barna, most effects of religion in people's lives seem to be momentary and driven by a disastrous event. For example, 9-11, one event, oh, it's over 20 years ago now, but the one event that everyone uh, can look back to. It was, there was a 27% increase in Bible sales the year after 9-11. But this one, 462% increase in sales of the movie series Left Behind the year after 9-11. 6% increase in church attendance. That was far less, though, than what happened when John Kennedy was assassinated. Church attendance went up 20% the year after that. Again, you begin to see what's going on in religion in this country. And as I mentioned already, since the pandemic, 30% of churches that closed never reopened. There's little question but the churches in general are struggling in the United States and really, for that matter, around the world. It can be properly said that churches are going through an identity crisis. What is their purpose? 
More people today believe the church is irrelevant than ever before. As I said, only 29% believe the church is relevant in their lives. What about the church of God? Are we secure in our identity? Do we know who we are and why we exist? I think part of the answer in the church as well as outside the church and religion in general uh, can be reflected by young people. Uh, there's a book that I came across recently. It's not a new book. The title of it is Keeping Your Teens in Touch with God. Keeping Your Teens in Touch with God, written by Robert Laurent. He researched the top 10 reasons teens stop attending church when they get older. The number one reason, lack of opportunity for meaningful involvement. Most teens are convinced that there is little place for them in the church. Relationships are the number one priority of teenagers. When an event is announced, teens don't ask what will the topic be. They ask who else is going. This is the question. Who will be there is more important than what is covered when it comes to teenagers. The same article goes on to explain what the author calls the top 10 reasons people join a church. What are their reasons for joining? That gives us some insight into whether the church has a purpose or not. This was done by, actually, this was done by the Institute of American Church Growth, interviewed 10,000 church attendees to learn why they came into their church. 2% came because of a specific need. Something happened in their lives. 3% just walked in one day. 6% came because of the pastor's speaking and influence. 1% came in response to a specific invitation from the church. 5% came because of children's programs. 3% came because of a particular program. 79% came because of the influence of a friend or relative. Now, when you stop and think about all this, these are just numbers, statistics. Again, uh, statistics, though, of course, refer to human beings and how people feel and what they're thinking. It is a clear conclusion whatever statistics you look at or however more you want to add to this, that church is irrelevant in most people's lives today. Now, that wasn't true 40, 50 years ago, but it is true today, and it's becoming less and less relevant. Some would say the church doesn't change fast enough. Again, I'm talking about in general, or isn't adopting to their needs. Yet the churches that have changed the most and become very uh, almost secular uh, from their casual dress to their casual, you know, any type of music to lots of music are finding themselves in the same dilemma as more of the traditional churches to have. It still doesn't fill the void. People consider it irrelevant. I don't want to talk about the churches of, our, of the world or the churches in America. I want to talk about the church of God. How would our statistics back up with those of the general statistics? In some ways, our statistics are similar. The number one reason a person gives for attending services in the beginning is the influence of a friend or relative. That's true for us. The growth of the church has been primarily, in the last number of years, by friends or family. That's especially true when you get outside the United States. I mentioned before, some of the growth in, in Africa that we've had is almost entirely driven by family and friends. Occasionally, there'll be a booklet that influences individuals. 
but their first contact is generally a family a member or a friend. In Latin America, it's very much so. Uh, it's a family member. It's a friend that they are introduced to. Now, we're seeing more and more response to the, uh, our websites and seeing more and more people that aren't influenced by a friend or a, a relative. But it's for decades been that way. So we have to say that some of our statistics are very similar. Very similar. Today, I want to talk about the church. What is the purpose of the church? And are we fulfilling that purpose? Can we do better? And what can our youth do to be more active in the congregations of the church of God? Let me begin in John chapter 6. John chapter 6 is a fundamental principle that drives every program of the church. Whether you are cognizant of it or you think about it, every program of the church is dominated by this one particular principle. It's a principle that is not acknowledged or accepted by any other, well, any church in the world that I'm aware of. And yet it drives everything. Sometimes we forget that. Sometimes we're not fully aware of that. John 6, verse 44. Repeated twice in John 6. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up at the last day. Now, when Christ said no one, did he mean some or a few, or did he really mean no one? So you're faced with a dilemma if you're a church. We are to preach the gospel to the world. We're to sow seed. There's many examples of that. But when it comes to a person being converted, coming into the church, there must be a miracle that takes place from God. Now, Sometimes we've used this as a two-edged sword. We've used it to explain away the fact that we're not doing maybe a lot, or maybe a lot of people aren't, aren't, being, aren't responding, that, well, God calls, we don't. And we sort of excuse ourselves. So that's one, I think, a wrong way to use that verse. Or the other way to use the verse is, well, God will do it. We don't need to do anything at all. Both are wrong. The church is obligated to do everything possible to sow the seed and put the message out there. We have no limits today when you consider the Internet. Now, again, we're limited by our resources, but there's no limit to how many people you can reach today. We have no excuse. We have really no excuse not to spread the message far and wide. As we have opportunity. Again, sometimes you don't have the opportunity. But everything is driven by this principle, that the miracle of conversion is not in your hands or my hands. The miracle of a calling isn't in your hands or my hands. It is from God. And that is a fundamental principle. You see how the Father and, of course, Jesus Christ as the Savior work together. The Father must call. It's through the sacrifice of Christ that we could be forgiven and be extended the grace that we all need to grow properly as certainly potentially spirit beings. We're now individuals driven by the Spirit of God. So we must consider that. With that principle in mind, I'd like to refer to two documents as I begin that I believe address particular principles that I will be elaborating on as we go along. 
The first is an article that appeared in the Plain Truth magazine in August of 1962. Now, again, you may say, well, why 1962? Well, 1962 was the year we began attending services. So this is the first article that addressed this issue when we began attending. Now, again, this article appeared in the 1950s. It was one of those articles that appeared periodically in the writings of the church in those days. You know, there were other articles that would appear in 1952, 1958, the similar article, maybe slightly updated. This would be in that same category. The title of the article, though, is Why the Church? Why the Church? Again, it appeared in August of 1962. I'd like to read just a short paragraph from that particular article, because, again, it lays the foundation for what I want to say as we go forward. Here's what the article said. What a paradox. What confusion. Almost no one seems to know what a church is or why have a church and what the church is supposed to accomplish. And yet church going is at an all-time high. Again, this was 1962. Right now, there is a new Protestant church built somewhere in the United States every 18 minutes. Different time period, 1962, as opposed to 2023. Hundreds of the converts make decisions for Christ in huge evangelistic campaigns. Thousands join the church of their choice each week. There are more Bibles in America than people. To most people, religion seems a confusing, conflicting hodgepodge of vague theological ideas proclaimed in the dim interior of a huge building in a drab, uninspiring, dull monotone. A person can walk into a building but he cannot walk into the church of God. Rather, he must be put into it. Again, John 6, 44. What should the church do? The world doesn't have the answer. Jesus not only built the church, but he gave it a job to perform. That job is not to change the world today. It is not to build churches to make the community a nicer place, a nicer place to live, to keep children off the streets, to keep to help stimulate civic pride or any of these vague, uh, unrealistic ideas. Then the article goes on to explain why the church. Again, I'll have more to say on that. The second document I'd like to begin with is our fundamental belief that defines the church. If you haven't read it lately, I hope you will. The fundamental belief, the church. The church of God is a spiritual body composed of believers who have and are being led by the Holy Spirit. The church is not a denomination, a human organization, or a building that the people God is working with in any age, uh, but the people that God is working with in any age. The biblical name, and this is important, uh, I believe it has been somewhat diluted in recent years, and people have sort of pushed it aside as not being very important. It's very important to us. And we believe it's very important to God. The biblical name of this church is the Church of God. We believe that's as important today as ever in the history of the Church of God. and has been the name of the Church of God throughout the centuries and continues to this day. Can you choose a different name? Well, you can. You can do anything you want. But the biblical name is the Church of God and so verified in 12 distinct verses in the New Testament. It's not a sort of pull one verse out of context to find the name. It is the biblical name. Its mission is to preach the gospel of the coming kingdom of God to all nations and to make disciples of all who respond to God's calling, assisting them in their spiritual development and reconciliation to God. 
upon those two documents and what they say even later on, I want to address the subject today, why the church? Now, I'm assuming, and again, it's always a problem to assume, but I'm assuming, uh, because I don't want to take the time to go there, that we all accept that the mission of the church is to preach the gospel to the world and to care for those disciples that God may call. I want to go in a bit of a different direction. I want to talk about what the church is for you when you come to church on the Sabbath. I'm not denying nor am I minimizing the mission of the church, but we have many sermons on the mission of the church. I want to go in a little different direction, same direction, I should say, but I want to talk about what lies underneath when you and I go to church every Sabbath. Let's go to Matthew chapter 16, verse 18. With that, with those two assumptions that we all agree that the mission of the church is to preach the gospel to the world and to care for those whom God may call. Let's go to Matthew 16, verse 18. This is the first mention in the English Bible of the word church. What did Christ mean? Matthew 16, verse 18. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it the most powerful prophetic statements made by Jesus Christ. Again, I ask the question, did Christ really mean what he said? Or is this sort of a hope for? You know, I was looking at at a book recently called Atomic Habits, and in the Atomic Habits, it says hope is not a strategy. You say, well, I'm hoping for the best. Well, that's not of and by itself a strategy. You know, it's, it's just, well, I hope it'll be okay. Is that what Christ meant here? Well, I hope there'll be a church. And I hope it'll be, you know, what, whatever it may become. Uh, you know, the idea being presented. Or was Christ very clear in what he said and what he meant? At some point in time, we have to make a decision. Either we accept what Christ said, or we reject what he said. Or we pick what we want that we agree with that he said. I hope we agree and we'll take what Christ said. Now, a number of years ago, and I've mentioned this before in sermons, it always impresses me when I read this verse that this is true of all the Bible. You can't see the person's face. You can't see their gestures. You don't know if they're angry when they say certain things. You just see the words written on paper. It's the worst, I shouldn't say the worst. It's one of the worst uh, ways to learn from someone is to just simply read the words. Now, you can learn, of course, but to have someone in your, in your face who is gesturing, who has emotion, has excitement or even anger, is more impressive than what you and I can read on paper, because we can read a lot of things into it. But we just read this on paper. So one author a number of years ago that I read said, well, you have to understand what Christ is doing here. And I tend to agree with him. I can't prove it. That Christ is looking at Simon Peter And he points to him. He points to Simon and says, I say to you that you are Peter, points to him. And on this rock, he points back to himself. Now, you can't see that in the scripture, but I say it fits the the scripture better. You're Peter, and I am the rock on which I'm going to build my church. I believe Christ said it with enthusiasm and excitement. I believe he was telling them something that was so profound and so powerful, I'm not convinced they even understood 
The church began on the day of Pentecost with the most incredible miracles that have ever been seen by a group of people in all history. You would have to go back to the Exodus and go back to Israel leaving Egypt to have seen anything like what occurred on the day of Pentecost when the church began. Christ did not intend for the church to be anything but the powerful spiritual. And again, I say powerful, powerful in the sense of having God's Holy Spirit, not powerful of and by themselves that began on the day of Pentecost that we just celebrated a few days ago. This is the first mention of the word church in the English Bible. It comes from the Greek word, either ekklesia or ecclesia, uh, different pronunciations. Thayers defines this word as a gathering of citizens called out from their homes to some public place and assembly. I want you to keep in mind that church is an assembly. It is an assembly. Now, again, people say, well, there are only two or three of us and we're in my home. Are we not also the church? Well, of course you're the church. But the very definition of church is an assembly. For those who can, obviously people who can't physically get together, it is to come together. It's built into the meaning of the word. Uh, so Theris defines it as a gathering of citizens called out from their homes to some public place and assembly. It comes from two Greek words, ek, which means out of, and kaleo, which means to call aloud, utter in a loud voice, or to invite. So the word for church means called out ones. Called out for what? The church, therefore, is a group of people, no more, no less. It is not a building or anything else. It is a group of people who have been called out for the purpose of assembly. Christ said he would build it. He didn't say we would or you would. He said he would build it. So we have to accept, again, whether Christ meant what he said. So if the church, which is to exist until Christ returns, certainly and even beyond, as we know, uh, would be built by Jesus Christ. That's what he said. We either accept that or we reject that. Does he really mean that he is the one who builds the church? The father calls, so, so to speak, puts them together, or he becomes, of course, as the Savior, the one through which their sins are forgiven, and, of course, becoming a part of something much bigger than themselves. So at this point, let's summarize a couple of things. What do we say the church is? Well, very simply, it is an assembly. Not one person. Again, please keep in mind, can one person be a part of the church or be the church in that sense, in that isolated area? We have some countries where we have one member. We really do. Uh, is that person not the church? Well, of course he is. But the very definition of the word is where I want to go back to. It's an assembly. An assembly of people. Uh, which, again, you could say requires multiples to get together. Now, again, I'm not suggesting that two or three uh, can't obviously worship God and be the church. As I said, we have many examples around the world where we have one person or one family in the church in the whole country. Well, are they not the church? Well, of course they're the church. I'm speaking, of course, by the definition of the word itself. It is composed of those called out of something and do something else. It is not a building or an organization, even though the Bible presents it as organized when it describes a body that every part works together. 
the opposite is not true to say, well, it's not, uh, it's of and by itself an organization. One should not imply that it means it is unorganized or that there is no governmental structure or relationships built upon that within the church. That would be a wrong conclusion, a wrong conclusion. So now let's talk about what purpose does the church serve? Again, I'm beginning with two assumptions, that we all agree that the mission of the church is to preach the gospel to the world and to care for those whom God may call. But let's go further. Why do we come to church? What do we do at church? We have a standard format that we follow. We followed for many years. Uh, that remains pretty much intact as we go along. We believe it's based upon a clear biblical model in many ways. Not every part of it's based on some section you can find from Scripture, but it's driven by principles from Scripture. And I, I would just explain to you and challenge you to study how worship took place in the Old Testament and how it took place in the New Testament and see that the model that we use today is consistent with those. And that's important to us. We are first and foremost, let's, let me give you a few uh, points, we'll have a number of them, uh, of why there is a church. Why is there a church? Again, with the assumption that we're to preach the gospel, care for the brethren. But what else is there about the church? First and foremost, we come to church to worship God. First and foremost, we come to church to worship God. Let's go back to Exodus chapter 20. Exodus 20, we have built in the Ten Commandments. Four that we clearly see are involved worshiping God. Four of them. The first four commandments. Therefore, should we not understand or should we not get what we're being told that it's very important to God that we worship Him? I would challenge you to read through the New Testament and over and over again, God corrects Israel for what? Idolatry. Is God at all concerned about how we worship Him or whether we worship Him? And how does that apply to church services? The first four commandments uh, are very directly concerned the church in the sense of worshiping God. If we're to worship God, what are we told here? Uh, what we're told, we're to have no other gods but the true God. We're told not to make any images of God. And we're told not to take His name in vain. Now, those sound rather archaic, you know. We don't live in a society that's involved in idolatry, or do we? We don't live in a society, we certainly live in a society that doesn't care to take God's name in vain. It doesn't mean a thing. Uh, what about other gods? You know, well, we don't really put statues up and worship them. We don't really build idols, do we? Or is there not some, something from the Scripture that states that you have idols of the heart? Back in the book of Ezekiel, I believe it is, that God condemned Israel not just for having an idol, but he said you have idols of the heart. So the first four commandments, those are the first three. Then the fourth commandment is the Sabbath day. To remember it, uh, we're told later on in Leviticus 23 to gather on the day. So if you look at the first four commandments, we see how important it is. They're the first four. The first four commandments tell us about worshiping God. Don't have another God, uh, don't build images, don't take my name in vain, and here's my Sabbath. Whose Sabbath is it? The first four commandments all are pointed toward worshiping God. Because if it's His Sabbath, 
to gather together on that day, you are doing what? Worshiping God. So out of the Ten Commandments, the first four focus on worshiping God. Well, how does God want us to worship Him? Let's look in the Bible and see a few examples or, or opportunities, you might say. Look at Isaiah 27, verse 13. <clears throat> Isaiah 27, verse 13. What do we see here? Well, this is a prophecy, of course, but what, what does it say about worshiping God? Isaiah chapter 27 and verse 13. And I'm only picking out a few scriptures. You could find, obviously, dozens, if not hundreds of scriptures that talk about how God wants to be worshiped. Isaiah 27, verse 13. So it shall be in that day, the great trumpet will be blown. They will come who are about to perish in the land of Assyria, and they who are outcasts in the land of Egypt. And they are said, and shall worship the Lord in the holy mount at Jerusalem. Now think about this. Of course, this is a prophecy, and Israel is in captivity, and they're coming back from captivity. Christ is returning to this earth. What is the most important thing for them? Well, I, in some ways, I mean, there are a lot of other physical things that are very important to them. I'm sure will be. But from God's perspective, the most important thing is now for them to worship God. Now, if church provides an opportunity to worship God, then where does it fit on that scale of things that should be important in our lives? If it is true, here we're told that the first thing Israel will do when they're brought out of captivity, when Christ returns, is to go to Jerusalem to worship God. Again, I can think of a thousand different things that I'm going to need coming out of captivity, and yet God says, this is what you do first. Does it at all begin to tell us that how God views the way we worship Him? Uh, Luke 4, verse 7 is a very, very short verse, but it, it, it says a lot when you think about how God wants to be worshipped. I submit to you that the Bible is filled with example after example of how God wants us to worship Him. That it's not a minor thing. And therefore, if church is part of its purpose to worship God, it becomes significantly a uh, part of our lives. Luke chapter 4 and verse 7. Luke 4 verse 7. Therefore, if you will worship before me, all will be yours. The devil tempts Christ by saying, if you will worship me, everything will be yours. But what does that tell us about, about God? Satan wants to replace God, and so he wants to be worshipped. Why does he want to be worshipped so badly? Why was that the final point where he and Christ, he's tempting Christ, he wants Christ to, to, to sin, actually to accept his power? And Christ refused and refused and refused. But he gets to his point at the end of the discussion. And he says, worship me. Worship me. And of course, Christ refuses, rejects him and says, get you behind me, Satan. Worship is a big deal. It's something that we do without thinking often. You know, we come to church. We're happy to be here. We fellowship. We enjoy it. We hear hopefully an encouraging message. All of that's true. But do we recognize that we're here to worship God? How does that figure in what we talk about? How does that figure 
in what we say in how we approach church services every Sabbath. We also know that in addition to, of course, worshiping God, or I should say in, other, in ways that we worship God, how do we worship God? In the book of uh, Nehemiah, we clearly find that a part of worshiping God is giving a message or receiving a message. We have the example of Ezra standing up before the group in Nehemiah chapter 8. And it says, well, let's go to Nehemiah chapter 8, that he stood in front of the people, that he read from the Scripture, and that he gave them the meaning of the Scriptures. That was a part of worshiping God. That was a part of what he did at that particular time. And, of course, this occurs on the Feast of Trumpets, the first day of the seventh month. Nehemiah chapter 8 and verse 1. Nehemiah 8 verse 1 says, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, I'm sorry, that's the wrong place. Nehemiah chapter 1. And verse, I'm sorry, Nehemiah chapter 8 and verse 1. Let me get there. I went to Numbers chapter 8 verse 1, and that is not correct. Even I know that. Uh, Nehemiah chapter 8 verse 1. Keep turning my Bible. Uh, chapter 8, verse 1. Now all the people gathered together as one man in the open square that was in front of the water gate. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded Israel. So this is the first day of the seventh month. This is a worship. You know, they're there to worship God. What did they do? They all gathered together as one person or one body and Ezra began to read, verse 4. So Ezra the scribe stood on a platform of wood which they had made for the purpose, and beside him in his right hand you have these others who are listed there. And then verse 5, Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was standing above all the people, and when he opened it, all the people stood up. Again, this is a worship service. How does God want to be worshipped? A part of worship is expounding his word. It was not just to hear something or even to learn something. I hope you learn something. But it is a part of worshiping God, to have a message that is based upon the Scriptures. And as I said, we follow that pattern today. Uh, verse 6, And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, then all the people answered, Amen, Amen, while lifting up their hands, and they bowed their heads and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. This was a worship service that they conducted on the day of trumpets on the Feast of Trumpets, first day of the seventh month. Uh, they, all, they had other things that went on at this time as well as other times. Look at Psalm chapter 92. Uh, min, most of the Psalms, certainly many of the Psalms, if it's not most of the Psalms, are actually songs that were sung in worship to God. Psalm 92, verse 1. It is good to give thanks for the Lord or to the Lord. And to sing praises to your name, O Most High, to declare your loving kindness in the morning and your faithfulness every night. On an instrument of ten strings, on the lute and on the harp, with har uh, harmonious sound. For you, Lord, have made me glad through your work. I will triumph in the works of your hands. Uh, worshiping God through singing, through songs. We find that also in Psalm 96, verse 1. Oh, sing unto the Lord a new song. Sing unto the Lord all the earth. And then continues on in Psalm 144, verse 9. I will sing a new song unto you, O God, upon a psaltery and an instrument of ten strings will I sing praises unto you. 
It is well known and certainly well documented that in the temple there were groups, or we would maybe say choirs today, of singers and musicians that, that performed or that played uh, in worshiping God at the temple. Therefore, music is a part of what we come to services for. Uh, generally, in our congregations, we are the music. You know, we sing, and I think appropriately so, as we worship God. We also come to services for another reason. It's all tied together, but another reason. Uh, this is found in at least two different sections of Scripture, where when we come to services, we come to meet with God. We come to meet with God. If you remember, or if you, if you know, and if you've seen in accord, that the theme for this past conference was workers together. And there's a statement in the New Testament that says, we are workers together with God. And that really strikes home the fact that we are working with God. I mean, obviously, He's our superior. We know that. But for the sake of working, we work together. That God is in our midst as we do our work. I suggest to you that God is in our midst as we come together every single Sabbath. That God is in our midst. In Exodus chapter 19, verse 17, the statement is made that Moses brought the children of Israel out to meet with God. To meet with God. So a part of what goes on there at Mount Sinai is Israel meeting with God. Do we not also accept the fact that when we come to services every Sabbath, we're here to meet with God? That God is in our presence. I submit to you that that should color or flavor how we act, what we say, and what we do. If we actually believe that God is in our presence. How should we do that? The church also teaches that we should dress up. You know, we should come in our best, whatever that may be in different parts of the world. Why? Because we're meeting with God. If worship is truly meeting with God, if we really believe that, then how do we conduct ourselves? Again, it's a question. I'm not criticizing anyone. I don't know of anyone in that sense. But just simply saying that that's a part of worshiping God is to meet with God. As God is a worker together in the work we're doing, is He not also present when we come to worship Him? If He isn't present in our services, then what are we doing? At some point, we do begin to fall over that edge, which says the same thing as the world says, is that is there really a purpose in a church? Is it really relevant today? Acts chapter 5 tells a very sad story of Ananias and Sapphira. It also illustrates that God really cares about the church. He really does. Again, I, I understand that that was an extreme example that occurred within a, a few days, probably, at Pentecost. And Ananias and Sapphira were struck dead because they lied to Peter. And therefore, they were lying to God. Now, how could they, you know, years ago, in the, back in our well, the Worldwide Church of God, uh, when they were instituting or coming to a trinity, they used that verse to say, well, if, if they lied to Peter, they lied to God, the Holy Spirit. And so, therefore, the Holy Spirit's a person. They kind of made that leap, which uh, sadly, which uh, happened at many times during those years, is that even extreme Protestants don't make that leap. Now, some will, but that, that that's saying the Holy Spirit is a person. We don't believe that. We don't believe Scripture. But what does the Scripture really tell us in Acts chapter 5? It tells us that God is concerned about what goes on in the church. 
that God made it very clear early on in the church, not only from the miracles of Pentecost, but from this example a few days or a few weeks later, that God does care what goes on in church. Again, I, if, if every person who ever misstated something or maybe lied over the last 2,000 years dropped dead, there'd be a whole lot fewer people around, obviously. Uh, you know, God isn't in the business of coming here, in my, my view, and therefore checking each one of us out. But it should make us think that God cares what we do. We are not here at church to impress someone else. We're here to please God. This is one of the fundamental problems that we all have today, that we put ourselves ahead of God. That we're here to somehow please someone else or to please ourselves, maybe. And I hope you're pleased to be here, but we're here to please God. He is, if this is truly the church of God, in our midst. In our midst. Another point that I want to make now, this, again, goes back to where I, where I started in the sense of preaching the gospel is part of it. And I, I did want to touch on it, even though I, I'm assuming that we all accept that as the mission of the church. But we come to services to support the preaching of the gospel. That's certainly true. We're here to support the preaching of the gospel. You know, in 2 Timothy 4, verse 5, uh, Timothy was told to do the work of an evangelist. An evangelist is a preacher of the gospel. Again, he was talking to, directly to Timothy. But I think that expands out to the church. If the church is the body of Christ, you know, follow me in this logic. If the church is the body of Christ, should we not as a church be doing what Christ did? And what did Christ do in the three and a half years of his ministry? He preached the gospel. So if we are the body of Christ, follow the metaphor, then we are to do as Christ did. He set the pattern. We are to preach the gospel. So when we come together on the Sabbath, here to worship God, we're also here to support the preaching of the gospel. Uh, in in the, obviously our discussion and things that we, we hope we, and certainly that we talk about, and certainly the messages we hear supporting the preaching of the gospel. It is the work of the church. Now, in Acts chapter 8, there's an interesting statement made about a group of the members of the church at that time. And from this verse, there are people that extrapolate that, well, we're all ministers. Well, you've probably heard that before. It's been around for a long time, that we're all ministers. And again, I, I know of individuals who were once a part of the church of God, who've kind of gotten off to themselves, and they get together for whether it be a feast or something, and they sort of uh, vote as to who's going to give the message today and who's going to give the message this afternoon or how that's going to be done. Because they're all the same. We are all the same. Well, we are all the same. You know, we're all Christians. We were all baptized. We have God's Holy Spirit. But that doesn't mean that each one of us has the same job. The body metaphor says something very different. You know, you've got the different parts of the body that have different functions. And certainly we see that in the church today. But Acts chapter 8 is confusing to some. Notice what it says, verse 4. Therefore, those who were scattered went everywhere preaching the word. Everywhere preaching the word. Those who were scattered. Is this saying that every member, therefore, became a minister and went out preaching? Again, this is an example where I, f I find Barnes, a commentary, very helpful. Barnes clarifies it very succinctly 
says preaching the word. The Greek word here is evangelizing or announcing the good news of the message of mercy or the word of God. It is not the usual word which is rendered preach in the rest of the New Testament, but means simply announcing the good news of salvation. There's no evidence, nor is there any probability that all these persons were ordained to preach. They were manifestly common Christians who were scattered by the persecution, and the meaning is that they communicated to their fellow men in conversation, wherever they met them, and probably in the synagogues, where all Jews had a right to speak, the glad tidings that the Messiah had come. It is not said that they set themselves up for public teachers, or that they administered baptism, or that they founded churches, but they proclaimed everywhere the news that a Savior had come. Their hearts were full of it. Their conversation was full of it. And people responded. A very different matter than going about and setting up a pedestal and beginning to preach to others on a street corner or wherever. Because it also would deny the fact of what Paul actually did. Uh, Paul told Titus to ordain elders in every city. If there's a need to ordain or appoint an elder in every city, if everyone's an elder, there's absolutely no need. So it completely, what Paul did completely contradicts this idea that we were all ministers, that we're all ministers. Another point, we come to services, the church provides us with an opportunity to serve one another, to serve one another. You can never minimize that part of worship or that part of the church. Again, the church, you know, has, has a mission, but the church is an opportunity to serve one another. It was important to God to have that body that could learn something that you cannot learn by yourself. For 10 years, my family kept the Sabbath at home. Uh, I believe we were part of the church. We listened to a broadcast, but who could we serve? Ourselves. That was it. We had no one else. Without a church, who can we serve? And how important is it that we serve? You know, Paul wrote to Timothy in 1 Timothy 3. He says, I want you to learn how to conduct yourself in the household of faith or in the church of God. How do you conduct yourself? Does that mean there's an expectation of what we do in church? Or is it just do whatever you want? Well, I believe Paul had an expectation that he wrote to Timothy of how we should conduct ourselves in the household of faith, in the church of God. And a part of that is serving each other. A church, the church, gives us an opportunity to serve one another that you do not have by yourself. So church is for the purpose of worshiping God. Church is for the purpose of meeting with God. Church is for the purpose of serving one another. These are the reasons, or some of the reasons, we come to church. Now, here's the downside, or here's the difficulty, and I reflected on that this past weekend. After years and years and years of being in the church, being faithful in the church, it is a truism that one can become tired. One can just simply become tired. Look at Galatians chapter 6. The Apostle Paul warned about this in Galatians chapter 6. The Apostle Paul, speaking to the church in Galatia, had this to say. 
when it comes to what can happen to a Christian after a number of years. Galatians 6 verse 9 says, And let us not grow weary while doing good, for in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all, especially to those who are of the household of faith. Paul wrote this for everyone. It really applies to us today. In fact, of all the lists of why people leave a church, they simply become tired. And over the years, I've met a number of people who simply said, I'm just tired. I'm worried. Now, again, I've, there, there are a couple of things involved with that. First of all, to be tired physically, that's understandable. And sometimes people have to stop doing a lot of things that they've been doing. They're simply tired. But to become tired spiritually, where no longer does the church have that draw or that ability to provide the excitement and enthusiasm for us any longer, that we simply fade away. You know, I look back to 1962 and the people who were at church then and how many of those people over the next decade became tired. I mean, again, there are various reasons, but were no longer attending services. There were quite a few. You think that in 1990, there were 150,000 people at the Feast of Tabernacles in 1990. That was the highest number in the Worldwide Church of God, 150,000. What happened? Now, again, it's not that everybody became tired, but I submit to you that a number of people did simply become tired. You know, I've seen over the years as well that many times uh, young couples, uh, parents, my, uh, our own family, uh, that the uh, uh, work involved, physical and also obviously spiritually coming to church, to bring your family, to keep your family involved, requires a lot of effort. I praise all of the mothers because I think they share the brunt of that work over the years. Uh, my wife has explained to me that she didn't hear a sermon for probably eight or ten years uh, because she was always in a mother's room or always taking care of a small child. You know, what? What? how important is that? Not only for the training of the children, but for them as well. But can you become tired? This, this is a not, well, I guess it is kind of a, a funny story. Uh, I'm, I'm not suggesting it's true, but it was about a mother who was really struggling says, a woman telephoned a friend and asked how she was. Terrible came the reply. My head's splitting. My back and legs are killing me. The house is a mess. The kids are simply driving me crazy. Very sympathetically, the caller said, listen, go and lie down. I'll come over right away and cook lunch for you, clean up your house, and take care of the children while you get some rest. By the way, how is Sam? Sam? The complaining housewife gasped. I have no husband named Sam. Oh, my, exclaimed the first woman. I must have dialed the wrong number. There was a long pause on the phone. Then finally a voice came out and said, does that mean you're not coming? It can be overwhelming to raise a family during their formative years as you are, of course, committed to serving God. There are many different reasons someone can become weary of well-doing. You can become discouraged and get worried. It can be because of health problems that you get worried. Or it can be that you don't see results. I'm not really growing. I'm not a better person today than I was yesterday. All of that can cause us to become weary in well-doing. So what am I saying? Well, Hebrews chapter 6, verses 9 through 10, I think gives a succinct answer to the church. 
it says that God will not forget something. You know, we're told that God puts our sins as far as east is from west, and, you know, He forgives us, and we, you know, hopefully God forgets what we've done, and I believe He does in those instances. But there's something God says He will never forget. Verse 9, Hebrews 6, verse 9. But, beloved, we are confident of better things concerning you. Yes, things that accompany salvation, though we speak in this manner. For God is not unjust to forget your work and labor of love, which you have what? Your work and labor of love. You love your family. You serve your family. Is that what he's talking about? He says, God will not forget your work and labor of love, which you have shown toward his name. How? And that you've ministered to the saints and do minister. Serving one another. If we become tired, it's understandable after all the years that many of us have been in the church. But we need to be on guard because it really isn't where we want to be. It really isn't what we want done. The church is a body. Each part of your body is dependent on another part. There's no part that can live alone. This is the way it is for a Christian. We should not live alone. Again, you may have to physically, but you should not live alone. If you try it, you will find it very, very difficult to maintain that relationship. God knew what he was doing when Christ announced he would build his church, and it would be composed of those called by the Father. In every congregation, there should be a place for everyone. We need all kinds of people with all kinds of skills. We need some people who just simply can be friendly. We all have different abilities and different opportunities to serve and help others. But we need to do what we can to serve and help others. We don't need to allow ourselves to become weary in well-doing. We need to hold the line, serve the saints, and worship God. So what is the church for? It is for all these reasons, but it's a tool and a body headed by Jesus Christ that preaches the gospel. The truth is preached every Sabbath. We each have a right to expect when we come to church to hear the truth. And when we come to the church each and every week, each congregation is part of a larger body that preaches the gospel to the world and provides pastors to care for the brethren, to love them, to teach them, to serve them, and to worship with them. This is the church. From the moment I set foot in my first local congregation back in 1962, I have known that the church was a special group, not a perfect group, but special group that we are all a part of the body of Christ doing the work of God. And to quote our theme from this past ministerial conference, workers together proclaiming and protecting God's truth, the church of God.